Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Wilson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier Pro 10 Cloverfield Lane Pro John Lithgow podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. The word of the day is expiation. We have, of course, watched The Mist, which is a film directed by Frank Darabont based on the short novella by Stephen King. Before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, you have the shortest list you have had thus far on the podcast. I think so, yeah. Like I've been saying these last few weeks, we've had a bit of a bottleneck that I'm just trying to wade water in until we move past. But I've only got two movies to talk about this week, both of them horror movies. The first is The Ruins. It is a survival horror film directed by Carter Smith. It's based on the book by Scott B. Smith, and it follows a group of American tourists who are checking out some Mayan ruins in the jungle. And once they get there, they are trapped atop the pyramid by locals who won't let them leave, and in fact kill one of the group in their initial encounter. And so they're stuck up there on top of the pyramid, and they slowly begin to discover the secrets of what this place is and why they're being kept there. Have you seen this? I've seen <sighs> videos about it. No, no, no. I, ha- I have seen The Ruins. It was just a long time yeah. ago. I'm being intentionally vague here. Mm. What mm. what makes the movie special is the question of why all this is happening yeah. and then how peculiar the answer is. It gives it away in the trailer, so don't watch the trailer, but it's just a very gritty, very high-tension very out-of-left-field sort of film. Mm. It's a lot of just people at wit's end. Yeah, it doesn't fuck around. Things are just getting worse, and everyone's got sort of injuries that they're having to deal with, and they're getting more injuries, and they're really at each other's throats with how all of this is going, and that's really what the horror is as much as the actual horror of, of physical danger. It's this interpersonal strife. It's this friction between the characters, this breakdown in friendships, and the intensifying social situation. And the characters are all very well drawn. They're very flawed, but they're recognisably flawed. You sort of see why they're doing what they're doing, and you you definitely believe that that's how people would probably react in a situation like this. Maybe not the character of Amy. The film doesn't seem to realise how annoying it's made her before they even get to the pyramid. Once she starts being a real asshole. That's nothing new. It's just her continuing state of being. But even she, you start to feel sympathy for her by the end. Uh, it can get quite grisly, this movie, though. Like, mm. really, really quite grisly. And the unrated cut, which I watched, is even more so. It has one of the most cringy, difficult-to-watch scenes of impromptu surgery I've seen in a film. That brings me right back. Yeah, uh, you remember what I'm talking about, don't you? Uh-huh. There's some very effective stuff, too, with the pyramid's history and what it all means, and there's it, it, it does a good job of not explaining too much. It gives you just enough explanation to come up with your own theories and ideas and to, I mean, that ambiguity is what gives it its mystery and its creepiness, and it's it's very well done visually. Like, they, they achieve quite a bit with... Uh, a relatively small budget and a relatively small amount of production value. I mean, it really is just people at, at the top of a pyramid for an hour and a half, but within that, they get a lot out of it, especially with the landscape that they've chosen. 
It's very much a movie about going to somewhere you shouldn't be going. Yeah, it's a very good horror movie and a very interesting horror movie. I can't quite think of another one exactly like it. That I would definitely recommend it to horror fans. Just be aware that you need a strong stomach for some of it, especially if you're watching the unrated version. And I will say watch the unrated version because it has a different ending than the theatrical cut. The theatrical cut, I don't know whether it was a producer interference or whatever, but they took out an extremely nihilistic final beat that makes the ending of the theatrical cut feel like an inappropriate conclusion, whereas the last screw you to the audience that the unrated cut ends with is more appropriate considering what has come before. But uh, next and last for this week, I saw the 2009 remake of My Bloody Valentine. <laughs> it's a slasher film directed by Patrick Lussier. It's based on the 1981 film directed by George Mahalka. And it is set in the in a small town that is the site of a gruesome series of events uh, about 10 years before this movie is set, where a bunch of miners were trapped in a cave-in. One of them went crazy, killed the others to get all the air he needed to survive. And then when he got out, he went crazy and killed a whole bunch of teenagers as well. Anyways, 10 years later, the killings have started up again after Tom, played by Jensen Ackles, returns to sell the mine, which he has inherited now that his father has died. And he is the one that made the mistake in the first place that got these miners trapped down there. And uh, now that he's back, the killings have restarted. And look, this is outrageously bad. It's kind of impressive how bad this is. It is, I mean, how is this a studio film? It's inept at every turn. There's, uh, regardless of whether a movie is good or not, if it has a studio backing to it, you expect at least a certain level of competency. This is like the baseline stuff. In a studio fair, you have people who are overlooking the project. Yeah. There's a baseline consistency. And that doesn't exist here. This looks like a soap opera. It's overlit. It has that glossy, textualist look of, of daytime television. And gang, you gotta know it's got 3D. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's so trashy, the use of 3D, the gimmick. It is actually one of the first, I believe it might be the f- one of, to be the first even of that real D mm. thing. This predates Avatar and A Christmas Carol, but it was using the same technology. Badly. Well, yes, but kind of also exactly what you want, like pickaxes flying at the screen yeah. and like people's lower jaws being ripped off and flung at the screen, like. It's absolutely the trashiest possible use of this technology, but isn't that kind of what you want in a movie called My Bloody Valentine 3D? It's written just as badly as the soap opera. This is an actual exchange I wrote down. There is a a sheriff that is cheating on his wife, and it's Valentine's Day, see, hence the title, My Bloody Valentine. He's just had a hookup with his mistress, and she gives him a box of chocolates for Valentine's Day. And he says, I didn't get you anything. And she says... You already gave me something. Uh, And he sort of looks at her quizzically and she says, I'm pregnant. Then she just turns around and walks away like it's the end of the conversation. That is like the high level of quality dialogue and character development that you can expect from My Bloody Valentine. It's just such a trashy movie. I mean, there is a frankly stunning amount of full frontal nudity. Like some of the most prolonged and consistent Like, it's just a woman running around naked for, like, five minutes. It's staggering how long it lingers. Yeah. 
But like I say all of this, I mean, it's it's trashy. The story hangs together terribly. I mean, there are so many red herrings. There are too many, actually, because then the solution just doesn't play fair. (laughs) It's not smart enough to play fair. I mean, there's all of these problems to it. But at the same time, is that kind of the point? Is that why I'm having such fun with it while I'm watching it? Like, (laughs) it is a remake of... An 80s slasher that oh, I think it might have even been the 70s. I'm not, I know it was the 80s, very early 80s. But like that original movie is way better than this. But it was a trashy slasher movie. Now, I got a lot of fun out of it, but it was a, tra- a trashy slasher movie. And in some ways, doesn't that make this the most faithful and accurate representation of an 80s slasher movie of all of these slasher remakes? I guess. It, it has the same ethos. Yeah. I mean, the and, and it has the same terrible acting. I mean, it's great. Like how how bad so many of these people are. It's it's. But poor Jensen Ackles, though. Yeah, you get veterans like Kevin Ty and Tom Atkins. They're fun because they know what movie they're in. But like, it's, it's just this peculiar chemistry of all of these things that are frankly awful in isolation. But you put them all together and slap my bloody Valentine on the box and. Somehow, I mean, it's not good, but it's incredibly entertaining and like weird, made me weirdly nostalgic for those old 80s horror movies that I watched because I watched so, so many of them mm. in the course of the list. I mean, we didn't get to talk about any of them on the podcast because no. I was already past them by the time we, we got there. But like, I watched a lot of them and some of them were terrible. Some of them were really fun. Some of them were genuinely good. But, you know, this, this sort of feels like a, an ode, an unintentional ode to that, because I don't believe that it was meant to be as <laughs> as trashy and bad as it is, but it is, and and kind of like that's the difference between this and Sharknado, right? Is Sharknado's doing that, you know, sort of ironic wink to the audience, like, haha, this is a joke that we're in on, and the joke can only stretch so far, exactly. Whereas this is this is what those eighties movies were, which is a movie that is actually trying but failing. And failing so spectacularly as to be entertaining. There's a purity of intent. Exactly. That just makes you go, oh dear. Anyways, it's available for streaming on Stan in Australia if anyone's interested. And quite honestly, if you can get a group of friends together to watch it and laugh at it, I would recommend it. I have always adored the minor aspect of it. It's such an evocative costume for a oh, slasher yeah, killer. Definitely. Like, the pickaxe. It's honestly. It is the stroke of brilliance that the original had. Yeah. And I've always loved that imagery. And also, cutting out someone's heart, putting it in the heart box, and sending it to someone? Brutal. (laughs) Alright, so, the first thing we watched is another anthology horror film from Shudder called Scare Package. It is a film sort of broadly overviewed and collated by Aaron B. Koontz and Cameron Burns. Features a series of horror shorts written and directed by Koontz himself, uh, Courtney Angela, Hilary Angela, Anthony Cousins, Emily Haggins, Chris McEnroy, Noah Segan, and Baron Vaughn. Can I just alert you very quickly to something you might not know? There is a sequel scheduled to release later this yes, year sorry, I was aware. called Scare Package 2 Rad Chad's Revenge. Mm. So, wait, so they're carrying on the worst segment of the movie? Yeah. As listed, the segments are Rad Chad's Horror Emporium, 
like slash horror hypothesis, which is like the second half of it, that also serves as the film's wraparound and is by far its weakest portion. And then there's Connie and Hilary Angela, or who do Girls' Night Out of Body, which is like this spin on Giallo, which is kind of really fun. Anthony Cousins directed The Night He Came Back Again, part four, The Final Kill, which is like a real play on the concept of the final girl's relationship to the killer, how the killer always comes back in the most bullshit possible way. Baron Vaughn directed So Much To Do, which is second weakest portion, I think, because it was just kind of boring, which is like a possession thing. Eh. Noah Segan directed Mister, which is essentially poking fun at men's rights activists. Pretty brutally, I might add. Yeah. Uh, which got a lot of laughs from me. Chris McEnroy did One Time in the Woods, which is like melting horror. <laughs> the best segment. With some truly, truly remarkable practical effects. It's like so inventive. It's actually really funny. It's saying something about horror movies and genre films. And again, the effects are just exquisite. But what we actually get as the cold open of the movie is a segment called Cold Open by Emily Haggins, in which, I shit you not, a character by the name Mike Myers, no relation to either Mike Myers or Michael Myers, he makes that explicitly clear, is a horror movie background character. He is the harbinger. He is the guy who does all the setup work. He's the one who cuts the phone lines. He cuts the power. But he's never given actual moments in these films. Yeah. <laughs> he just does the preamble groundwork, uh, which is hilarious. He sells people their new haunted house. He curses the living doll uh, with the spirit of a dead child. It's fascinating and hilarious. Just overall, generally, this movie is good, but it tries too hard to be funny at moments. It tries too hard to do every cliche. Which really comes down to the ultimate weakness of the wraparound, the Redshed's Horror Emporium thing. It's set primarily in this old video store where... Chad is teaching the new guy the ropes. It's just, it comes off as kind of lazy. Tries too hard. Try hard in a smidge gatekeepy. Just yeah. a smidge. But the second half of it, where they play into all the horror tropes and stuff, referencing them, is interesting to begin with. Because there's like scientists studying a serial killer from a slasher movie to figure out why he has all these different abilities and stuff. Which is interesting, but other than that, it's just kind of lazy. It's not my favorite horror anthology. It's it's varying levels of quality. Some segments are really strong, but others just kind of fade from memory immediately after they're done. And you want a good level of consistency? You're always going to get segments better than others. But there has to be a consistent level of quality, and I should I shouldn't forget any of them. There should be at least one thing that sparks recognition in my mind, and if you have a week, couple of week segments with a really weak wraparound, eh, if they bring the characters from the wraparound back in the sequel for the wraparound, I will be less interested, by far, in Scare Package 2. But you can find that on Shudder. Also available on Shudder is a film known in certain areas as UFO Abduction, but known in others as... The McPherson. It is a 1989 American found footage science fiction horror film produced, written, and directed by Dean Eliotto, 
The film centers on a family who were terrorized by extraterrestrials during a birthday celebration. This is one of the first science fiction horror-based found footage films, and it shows. But it shows in a really, really good way. This is filmed on an old-school camera from 1989, and you have this purely limited frame of view. It is shot almost entirely, like, full-time. It's closed-time, closed space, uh, which is honestly just a remarkable piece of filmmaking, how well it was all cut together. Because there were times when it could have been really weak, but stayed really strong. And I... The use of such a imperfect camera, using an imperfect filming technique, really raises the tension in this piece. You don't see everything. And what you do see is often obscured by either framing or by just the grainy-ass quality of the picture. Yeah. It feels real to the point where it was shown around, like, spread on the internet to conspiracy theorists and alien abduction enthusiasts. As real. And you gotta know they believed it, even though it has, like, an actual credit sequence. <laughs> what also helps the legitimacy of this piece as a found footage work is how the actors perform. There were conversations that happened at the beginning of the movie. Like, the first, say, 15 minutes is just people sitting at a table talking at a birthday party. And people are speaking over each other, people are uh, repeating themselves, people are doing the ums and ahs of regular human speech. And I always get this big smile on my face whenever I see that happen in especially found footage films, because the whole idea of the found footage framing is to have that veneer of reality. You know, we discussed a lot of these techniques in Cloverfield. It's to get us immediately sucked into the humanity of a situation. We get little context on things, we're being dropped right into this situation. It is frankly just a remarkable piece of work, but I do have to say my favorite part is the aliens themselves. They're straight up the gray aliens, baby. They're the dudes with the big heads and the big fat round eyes. Do they remade this? Mm-hmm. There's a the same directors remade it later on uh, in the in nineteen ninety eight as Alien Abduction Incident in Lake County. We watched the original version. But I'm interested. I'm interested in the more recent film, but this will always be just more interesting because of the limited amount of information we get. And that is one of the key elements to a successful found footage film. Apparently they only released it on Blu-ray a couple of years ago. Like, they were able to track down enough of the materials needed to... Because I'm just looking at some of this and there's all this stuff about how apparently the master tape was lost in a warehouse fire and... Just that it seems to, to take them a long time to get it into a, a state where they could remaster it, but they've actually even put it out on Blu-ray now. Mm. Mm. But a lower quality version works a lot better, you know? I, I wouldn't want something with much higher fidelity than what we got on the streaming of it on Shudder. It just feels real. That's the thing that I keep getting from this movie, the verisimilitude. The fact that the aliens seem to be having this psychological effect on the people, like, their, simply their presence raises people's blood pressure. Their presence confuses people. They talk of hearing voices in their heads, but they never explain what the voices are saying. It's a, it's a very psychological horror as well. 
it may be a little bit long, even though it is technically really, really short, but it's an exceptional piece of found footage filmmaking. There's no wasted time. I would consider it comparable in a lot of ways to films that will come later on, like Blair Witch Project. The use of imperfect cameras, imperfect framing, imperfect line delivery, imperfect staging. It Found footage is a format in which imperfection makes a film perfect. And this is just a really great example of that. You can find the McPherson tape on Shudder. And in the same token, after we watch the McPherson tape, I watched a found footage documentary called The Found Footage Phenomenon, also found on Shudder. It's an independent documentary that charts the origins of the found footage subgenre, tracking it through the technique's current form and asking what the future of that genre is. It is directed by Sarah Appleton and Philip Escott, and they interview a bunch of people involved with some of the biggest found footage films of the genre. Dean Aliotto's one of them. Dean Aliotto gets interviewed about both the McPherson tape and his remake. This is great. It tracks through the history of the subgenre, going all the way back to talking about a lot of the cinema from Italy back in the 60s and the 70s, talking about how a lot of these documentary films that showed actual gore that went into subcultures who live in the woods and interviewing them, visiting tribes of people who have never been visited before and embedding themselves in there, and how that all inspired films like Cannibal Ferox and Cannibal Holocaust, and the somewhat found footage aspects of those, going all the way to our personal favorite found footage movie, I know, Ghostwatch. They interview Stephen Volk about it, and they talk about how Volk tried to get away with as much as he possibly could under the BBC's strict supervision. Basically, there's just a lot of discussion about the honesty and the truth inherent within the framework of found footage, of there being that sense of reality inherent to the fiction there. They also discuss somewhat things like Cloverfield and things like Chronicle, these sort of higher-budget found-footage movies that don't have that same verisimilitude with reality because these events would be on the news. These events are too big. And sort of the differences with that, they discuss paranormal activity and the intention behind that first film where it was directed and written on the cheap on one of the editor's off days, like days off from his actual job. And it was put together then and made just absolutely bucket loads of money and became its own franchise. They also talked to actual academics about the topic. They talked to Alexandra Heller Nicholas, who is an author who has written about found footage and horror generally. And this was fascinating because it goes into the history of it. It goes into what the genre means. And I appreciated that kind of deep dive thematically into the topic. And that was also on Shudder. The documentary stuff on Shudder is fantastic. I also watched an episode of Cursed Films about The Exorcist, which they actually interviewed 
a God's Honest Exorcist about what he thinks of the movie, and they showed some of him doing actual, well, quote-unquote, actual exorcisms on people. But they also question what this guy's intention is, because he's also taking money from these people. He's getting paid to do these exorcisms on them. So that was interesting as well. But in terms of the actual movie movies that I'm going to talk about, the first one is called Boytown. It is directed by Kevin Carlin and is written by Mick Malloy. It follows Boytown, a successful 80s boy band of the same name, reforming their band in contemporary times, in the hope that they can capture some of their former glory and that fans will still be interested. Tommy, Corey, Benny G, and two others try to reform Boytown in 2005, but now they're all in their late 30s. They're out of step with times, and they're out of step with each other. What follows is their tale as they try to recapture some of their former magic. It stars Glenn Robbins, Mick Malloy, Bob Franklin, Wayne Hope, Gary X, Sally Phillips, and Lockie Holm. This is funny, but I think it tries too hard. It, it takes itself a little too seriously at times. It does a lot of very good stuff at mocking boy bands. They have a lot of fun with the songs and the music videos for those songs within the fiction. And the performances by the comedians here are generally pretty good. Uh, Glenn Robbins does a very good job at this guy who's looking back at his faded glory and wants to just recapture that spark of his youth and dragging these other blokes along for the ride. Mick Malloy is also great as the most resistant and hesitant of this group and has given himself a really interesting job to do there. But the really big thing about this movie is the interactions between the band members. You've got all of the different kinds. You've got the bad boy. You've got the one who is definitely, possibly, definitely gay. You've got the one who has turned into this heavy intellectual, he was the one who would write their lyrics, but it's all trash. All of the lyrics he writes are garbage. And it really follows that structure of coming back into the limelight, getting an actual hit single, going on the tour, and everything that that entails. But generally, this movie tries too hard. This was found on Stan. We next watched another music biopic parody, but this one is absolutely excellent. It captured me from the get-go with the amount of references. It is called Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story. You spoke about it as coming out at the same time as some of the movies we've talked about previously. This was directed in 2007 by Jake Kasdan, written by Judd Apatow and Jake Kasdan. It stars John C. Riley as Dewey Cox, a singer, musician, who we follow through the ups and downs of his life. You see, he has a tragic backstory. While playing in the barn with his brother, he accidentally chopped him in half with a machete as they were playing, and because of the trauma, no longer has a sense of smell. We follow Dewey Cox as he goes through every single step on the musician's biopic life. A dark period where he gets heavy into drugs and goes to rehab, where there are too many blankets and then there's not enough. Where he tries to be 
political and tries to fight for a cause. Where he goes over the top and gets an orchestra involved parodying Brian Wilson during the smile sessions in the Beach Boys. And to the end of his career, where he's at the Grammys and he's performing for a packed crowd with a song that very on the nose talks about his life and how long and difficult it's been. The real strength here is a lot of the parody elements. You get, frankly, remarkable translations of a lot of people's signature styles. Roy Orbison, Elvis Presley, Beach Boys. But the strongest one, and the one that John C. Riley nails the best, would have to be Bob Dylan. Mailboxes drip like lampposts in the twisted birth canal of the Coliseum. Rim job fairy teapots mask the temper tantrum. Oh, say, can you see them? Stuffed cabbages, the darling of the laundromat. And the sorority mascot set with the lumberjack. Pressing, passing, stinging, half synthetic fabrications of his time. I am still thoroughly impressed by his talent as a vocal artist. I know I shouldn't be surprised because of how wonderfully he performed Mr. Cellophane, but it still strikes me that he is so talented when his regular speaking voice would denote otherwise. You don't expect such a gorgeous voice to come out of this guy. Because he's in so many comedies, he's he's not known for this. You know he's a talented comic. You know that in his dramatic roles, he can really nail it. But you don't expect such a wonderful vocal control. Especially when a lot of his other roles have him screaming a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of great songs here. All performed, and even acoustic guitars performed by John C. Riley, All written by actual songwriters who ape the styles of these people perfectly walk hard let's do it which is thinly veiled sexual double entendre after double entendre and i think harley and my personal favorite let me hold you parentheses little man which has to be heard to be believed it has to be heard to be believed because it's a parody of all those incredibly sentimental and well-meaning protest songs of the time that are deeply inappropriate as well. The Imagine Thing. Imagine Thing, exactly. But not only through the music is this a great parody, but plot beats. We see parodies from everything from the that Johnny Cash movie with Joaquin Phoenix, everything from Ray with Jamie Foxx. It's the musical biopic structure. And there's a fantastic sequence where Dewey Cox goes to India and meets the Beatles. Jack Black plays Paul McCartney and has a different accent every line. It is brilliant. Each actor they get as the members of the Beatles simply don't make sense. Paul Rudd as John Lennon. The scene is so hilarious because no one is playing it 100% straight. We're nothing but grains of sand that was freaking transcendental paul mccartney don't you agree john lennon yes dewey cox with meditation there's no limit to what we can imagine what do you think george harrison of the beatles i don't know you know i'm just trying to get some more songs on the album you know. and as ringo star i'm not so interested in meditation i just like to have fun 
<laughs> I like the little one. <laughs> it's so dark in this tent, you know. It reminds me when we, the Beatles, the four Beatles, mm. us. From Liverpool. Yeah, we are from Liverpool. Mm. We used to play those dark clubs in Hamburg. You remember that ball? Of course I do. I booked them. I'm the leader of the Beatles. I've got a song about an octopus. Jam it up your ass. You're lucky we still like to play drums. It's a really funny movie on a structural level. You could find this on Binge. I highly recommend it to music fans generally and anyone who has watched too many biopics where someone cheats on their wife and then gets into drugs and that at the end of the day gets back together with their bandmates and they all share knowing glances and they nod at each other. It's exactly that. If you're sick of those stories, watch Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, because it goes for the throat. Yeah, it eviscerates that structure. So that's what we've seen within the week. Now we're going to play for you the trailer to Frank Darabont's The Mist. Whoa! Mom, Dad, you gotta come see! The butt is so bad, you just gotta... Come, come on! Whoa! Having spoken, the doomsayer departs. Come on! <laughs> Why don't you get Billy dressed? I'll take him into town with him. Hit the store before it gets all bought out. How'd you folks hold up in the storm? Big insurance day. Sorry to hear that. What's going on? It's death. Something in the mist! Shut the doors! Shut the doors! The only way we're going to help ourselves is to seek rescue. Tie this around your waist. Or four. It'll let us know you got at least 300 feet. There's nothing out there. Nothing in the mist. What if you're wrong? Then I guess that job would be on me. Read the good book. It calls for blood. Guys, I hear something. Are those bugs? Not like any I've ever seen. The entire front of this store is plate glass. They wanted to try and make a window. Well, maybe your window turned out to be a door. Who she's gonna sacrifice to make it all better? We want the board. You try it. Kill him! That was the trailer for The Mist. It is a horror film directed by Frank Darabont, and it is based on the Stephen King novella of the same name. The story begins the morning after a violent thunderstorm rocks a small lakeside town, probably in Maine. I mean, yeah. David Drayton, played by Thomas Jane, and his young son Billy, played by Nathan Gamble, head into town to pick up some essentials to get them through the tediousness of the clean-up. They give a ride to Brent Norton, played by Andre Brower, their litigious neighbour 
who has a strained relationship with David after some vague prior lawsuit, but a tree fell on his car, so he's had to suck it up. Half the town seems to be at the grocery store, and progress through the checkout is slow, probably because the shop only seems to employ two cashiers. This ends up being a lucky break, though, because while David and Billy are waiting in line, a man comes charging into the store. He's panicked, yelling about something in the approaching mist that snatched away his friend. Within a minute, the store is shrouded in a dense fog that obscures all line of sight, and the nervous customers are quickly convinced to shelter in place, when the few that dare venture into the parking lot are quickly butchered by monsters. There are a few voices of reason. Check out clerk Ollie Weeks, played by Toby Jones, a weedy little man who is both the smartest person in the building and a secret badass, yeah. proves a sensible collaborator as David tries to protect his son, as does Amanda Dunfrey, played by Laurie Holden, a local school teacher. The same cannot be said for Mrs. Carmody, played by Marsha Gay Harden a deeply obnoxious religious zealot who probably pickets the funerals of gay soldiers in her free time. Carmody is the town weirdo, but now, with otherworldly monsters slinking about outside, her rants about the end of days gain credibility among the more easily led. Carmody quickly proves dangerous. Her proclamations of repentance and expiation are more about control and power than faith, and David watches in horror as more and more of his neighbours fall under her sway. When she turns to human sacrifice, he decides it's probably time to chance it with the other monsters outside. Yeah, peace out. The comedy is having fun with her new fiefdom, and she's not inclined to let anyone go. It soon becomes apparent that if David, Billy, Ollie, Amanda, and the few remaining apostates want to get out of Dodge, they're going to have to be very careful. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we think of The Mist? Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I mean, what can I say about this film that hasn't been said already? It's absolutely brilliant. It's a work of art. It's all about faith and about this small cross-section of humanity where we get people from all over the spectrum, religious, non-religious, left, right, center. And it's all about what people do in a crisis. And turns out, people suck. And people will go towards anyone with the vaguest answer. Alright, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This is a movie about crises. We've had three of those, which is a lot. You'll be have one next week, too. Yeah, rock and roll. <laughs> it's almost like you're trying to tell us something there. Can I just start my time again? Yes. Yeah. Three, two, one, go. This is a movie about crises. This is a movie about what happens to the human animal when put in a situation it doesn't understand. And by that nature, we got a bleak one today, gang. It is It is not something you watch if you want to feel good, because I felt like shit afterwards. Um, which is really what Darabon was going for. Uh, Toby Jones kicks a lot of ass. <laughs> Ollie Fox. <laughs> Like, he rocks. He's great. Like, when he says, oh, I've got a gun, I'm like, fuck you yeah, do. you do, my son. I'm just surprised more people in the place weren't strapped. Oh, true. It is America. I think those are the ones that, like, went out to begin with. <laughs> you can't tell me to stay inside. It's like, there's nothing out there. It's barely foggy. The mist doesn't exist. I've taken my <laughs> ivermectin. I'll be fine. 
<laughs> this is probably related to George Soros in some way. It's the chemtrail. <laughs> it's the Jewish mist lasers. It's because they've turned the fucking frogs gay. <laughs> All right, let me cue myself up here. <laughs> Three, two, one, go. I really like this movie. I think it's tense. It's incredibly frustrating, but also vital in sort of what it's talking about. It's creepy. It's suspenseful. Uh, Mrs. Carmody and her cult are a lot more believable to me now than they were mm-hmm. when I first uh-huh. saw it 10 years ago. And that ending, I mean, Woof. there's a reason it's legendary. Uh, so I do have a production history here. Stephen King's novella was first published in the anthology book Dark Forces in 1980. King was inspired by a huge storm that hit his town. Uh, and the day after, he went with his son to the shops to get supplies And as he was walking in, he thought, oh, wouldn't it be really interesting if, you know, everyone was trapped in here after an event like this? And and by the time he was at the checkout, he had the basic idea of what he wanted the story to be. Frank Darabont read it when it came out, and he loved it. He established a relationship with King when he approached King for permission to adapt the short story as a short film. King has actually identified him as the trigger for his dollar baby scheme, where Stephen King would give the rights to uh, make a non-commercial short film to students and amateur filmmakers for a dollar. Uh, and actually, to hear King tell it, he he believes, uh, thinking back, that Darabont is the first person to, the first student filmmaker to actually contact him about such a thing and, and put the idea in his head. And uh, he was so pleased with that student film that he actually made a handshake deal with Darabont to save the rights for the Shawshank Redemption for him. And Darabont eventually managed to get that made, though it took him a decade. Uh, he considered doing The Mist first, actually. But after the Shawshank Redemption came out, he did The Green Mile. And then, having exhausted the Stephen King prison stories, he decided to go for the more, you know, sort of allegorical Stephen King prison stories and uh, acquired the rights for this one. And he set the project up at Paramount after his first and currently only non-adaptation, The Majestic, bombed at the box office. In 2006, however, Paramount dropped the project because, you see, Darabont had a pretty bold idea for an ending, and it was different from the book. Uh, In the book... At the end, the survivors in the car, I mean, the whole story is sort of told as the written records of David. And the last chapter, the last beat in the story is he's basically saying, we're almost out of petrol in the car. We're just going to drive and hope that's something we can find something, anything. But just in case I'm leaving this journal here. Uh, in case anyone finds it. So it's it's left with ambiguity as they drive off into the mist. Obviously, that that's not the case at the end of this movie. It is much bleaker, much more nihilistic, and Stephen King loved it. <laughs> he said he, he wished he had thought of that. I'm sure you do, Stevie. Yeah, but the studio executives didn't love it, but uh, Darabont would not be swayed to change it. He supposedly wanted it to be even worse. Um, he... <laughs> He apparently wanted the sup- the mob from the supermarket to be in the back of the military convoy. So if they had just stayed in the supermarket for a few hours longer, the military would have rocked up. But uh, actor availability 
nixed that. Enter Dimension Films and Bob Weinstein. Bob Weinstein was interested, and Darabont extracted a commitment from him that guaranteed the ending, basically. There were trade-offs. Darabont loved the idea of it being black and white, but that was a no-go, and he was also made to do it for about half the budget he could have gotten from a different studio if he had changed the ending. Darabont agreed, and the film moved quickly into production. Darabont wasn't used to the style of filmmaking, that, that sort of quick, on the cheap, we don't have a long schedule, we don't have much money. And so he decided to get some experience, and he went and directed an episode of The Shield to try it out, uh, what that kind of filmmaking was like. And he even hired the same camera crew from The Shield to film this movie, because he had been quite taken with their more reactive quick documentary style. The way that they operated is that they would have multiple handheld cameras operating at once in the scene, moving around, sort of reacting to events to get a lot of coverage. And Darabont liked the effect that that created. He liked how efficient and how quick it was. And so he hired them to shoot the mist. And the shoot went well. Uh, Darabont discovered a lot of the actors he would cast in The Walking Dead a few years later here. Laurie Holden, Jeffrey DeMunn, Melissa McBride, even Sam Witwer, who plays the the lead soldier here, turns up as a zombie hmm. in the first episode of The Walking Dead, the one directed by Darabont. Sixty extras populate the supermarket, and unlike the way extras are normally used... They were basically uh, treated as supporting actors. They were asked to maintain consistency and to maintain a continued, you know, level of, of interaction of what they were doing in the background, of who they were with, uh, to create a feeling that this was actually, that these were people in the back. And if you really want to, you can look in the background and see them go one by one over to uh, Marsha Gay Harden's side. But the film was released on the 21st of November 2007. Its widest release was in 2,423 theatres, and it launched number eight at the box office against Enchanted, Hitman, and August Rush. It did decent business. It made $57.5 million on an $18 million budget, and it was the 96th highest grossing movie of 2007. It didn't come out in Australia until the 7th of February 2008. Its widest release here was in 116 theatres and it launched seven at the box office. Against Getting the, the side down, guys. Well, it was higher at the box office than it was in America. Fair point. It was launched against the immediately forgotten Matthew McConaughey movie Fool's Gold. I remember enough of that to make that really hilarious. We actually overrepresented. Uh, we contributed to 5 million of the 57.5 million worldwide All right, then, gross. Sorry, I take it back. Hey, Ozzy, you're the real one. The film received a positive critical reception. It has a 72% Rotten Tomatoes rating. The critics' consensus there reads, Frank Darabont's impressive camera work and politically incisive script make The Mist a truly frightening experience. Audiences were more mixed because, as has been demonstrated time and time again, Audiences don't like it when horror movies actually unsettle them. Uh, it has a C cinema score, and that is exactly what I would expect given the ending. The film featured at a number of more enthusiast uh, award get-ups. Um, it didn't get nominated for anything major, but it was a 
winner of two awards at the Saturn Awards. It won Best DVD Special Edition Release, uh, and it also won Best Supporting Actress for Marsha Gay Harden. In addition, it was nominated there for Best Horror Film and Best Director. At the Empire Awards, Empire Magazine nominated it for Best Horror Movie. And at the Taurus Awards, which are the World Stunt Awards, we've talked about them a bit, you have Best Fire Stunt. It was yeah. nominated for, for obviously the scene where the guy accidentally sets himself on fire while trying yeah. to fight the bat thing. Like the moment that happened, I was like, yeah, fire stunt. Hell yeah, that's a full burn. It became pretty much an instant cult classic, and it enjoys a very strong legacy. Bloody Disgusting named it the fourth best horror movie of the 2000s. So let's, I don't know, let's, where do you want to start with this one? Thomas Jane got Rob, if the Academy weren't such cowards, he would have been nominated. I can't tell if you're being serious. For that final scene. Uh, for me, Thomas Jane's probably the weakest thing about that final scene. Sure. But he's he's a bit of a like he's a bit of a cardboard actor. He's he doesn't have a huge amount of range. Well look, let's just let's just start with the, the, the initial premise. I mean this is a pressure cooker. This mm. is we've been doing we did it a bit last week also with, with Ten Cloverfield Lane. It's these people trapped inside the bunker or something outside that's preventing them from leaving. But really the most dangerous thing is in there with them. Yeah. And it's each other. And in the same way that, that I mean, there's the connection even further beyond that. I mean, we talked about 9-11 parallels and war on terror parallels and sort of the fracturing of American consensus last week. Well, you see a lot of that here, too. People going towards religious fundamentalism. Darabont finds the allegory, the political allegory, and, and he makes it current. He he takes the, the 80s stuff that King was doing and he places it into a very post-9-11 sort of yeah. thing of of fear and of, uh, you know, left versus right and, you know, the, the I, I suppose, the religious evangelical right. I do want to talk, as effective as that stuff is, I do want to talk at some point about the way I think that the movie lets itself down by how basically it portrays comedy. Mm. But let's table that for the moment. But, like... It's setting up a situation in which all of these people are trapped in a confined space with each other and they all represent different fault lines within American society. I mean, there's the, the city people versus the people who live in the small towns. There's, you know, the, the sort of William Sadler, salt of the earth, you know, worker versus the... The, the big shot. The big shot arts guy in Thomas Jane. Or the city lawyer, Andre Brower. Yeah. And then there's just by casting Andre Brower as one of the only black characters in mm. the entire movie, you get uh, an automatic racial undercurrent yeah. to some of that as well. Um, especially especially in the way that he, he, he that Andre Brower is so sort of suspicious about yeah. the way mm. that he's being treated. And apparently Andre Brower added in that kind of subtext to that scene. Mm. Like, he did that on purpose. Which yeah. makes a lot of sense. What I also like about that setup is the filmmakers have made us feel cramped in there as well. Yeah. The use of the handheld camera is exceptional as a technique to get us really in the space. And it feels very different to when we're not in the supermarket or in the mist. Before that, it's very much 
sort of normal style filming there's sort of sweeping things it's less shaky and is a little bit more stable but when we're in when we're confined when we're in these tense situations that's when people start to get jostled around and everything let me just say that what is shrouding the town is not mist it is fog yes the definition of fog is when you can see less than a thousand meters away if you if you can see further than a thousand meters, it's missed. Yeah, right. But there was already a story called the fog. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> damn you, John Carpenter! When you see the mist rolling in, you expect to see them zombie zombie ass pirates walking out. Oh, imagine if the the mist connected with the fog, and it's the bugs versus the zombie pirates. <laughs> Bugs would win. That would rock. Especially those spiders with, like, the weird faces. Okay, we'll we'll get to that. But what I like about this movie are the conversations had about... There's a very explicit one, let's be completely honest, between all of our group, our party, when they go into the back room to discuss what's happening with comedy. Mm. It's people will go towards the people who maybe don't have answers, but claim to. The people who are confident enough to say they know what's up. And Laurie Holden's like, uh, People are basically oh, good. I can't believe that. You can't believe that, can you, Ollie? And Ollie just turns around and says, as a species, we're fundamentally insane. Because like, Ollie knows what's like, up. Fuck yes, Ollie. Like, every single line that that guy says, I'm like, honestly, trust, th- trust him. He seems to have sort of the inside track of what is good in this situation. Like, he's... He's strapped. He knows exactly when he needs to put comedy out of the picture, even though I think he waited a little too long, just in my opinion. He... I don't know. It's a lot to kill a person. Yeah. But, like, yeah. here's the thing. The the discussion that they're having is about what happens in time of crisis. And mm. Laurie Holden is being naive because, mm. frankly, Miss Holden, what crisis in the past, well, up to that point, in, in humanity's past has really brought people together. What, what crisis has well, brought people together for a good reason, at least. What, what crisis hasn't divided us and showed us the darkness of humankind? There are people in times of calamity that reveal themselves to be good, helpful, heroic even, but there are a lot of us who just end up scared, and that fear leads to division and rage where we, where we are unable to control what's going on we lash out there's also something even even more specific looming over this which is the recency at the time of hurricane katrina mm. i mean the the frankly phenomenal screw-ups and uh the way that that all ended up with with people really fighting to survive lots of looting lots of you know the best and worst of people on display at once because uh, they were you know trapped in this city trapped in buildings trapped in the superdome there was also the lack of adequate response exactly like that's the thing of of if you want to draw that parallel that the the military is responsible for the mist or the, the US government is responsible for the mist and then that that in the same way the argument can be made that because of its failures of of adequate response but also adequate preparation of you know the the levees and all of the stuff that had to fail for what happened in mm. new orleans to happen that there's, there's a point that's been made over and over again that the federal government was was at least mm. partially responsible for what happened there I mean, so- and with disasters the world over the 
Since that some are definitely man-made, checks and balances weren't put in place, so we get situations like Fukushima, where a flood and tidal wave connected with a nuclear reactor and caused even more issues. We've got the floods that we had over the past five years here in Australia, and the bushfires, where not enough was being done by the government. People had to step up. Like, people had to gather money, gather resources. We had Firefight, a concert where a bunch of performers, not even from this country, were like, something needs to happen. So they did something where government failed. But I think like the, the point that I'm drawing to Hurricane Katrina is the specificity of mm. all of these people yeah. locked in the one space by the sort of natural phenomenon outside, mm. or supposedly natural phenomenon in I don't know. It's natural. It's just not from our plane of existence. Yeah, it's like, exactly. Like, I would consider that as natural, just different. Yeah. And it's not explicitly connected in, in the movie, but the storm is sort of the cause of this. That they were originally going to film an opening scene that they ended up cutting because they thought it would be more effective if it was kept ambiguous that was going to start off in this military laboratory where they were trying to open this window that they were talking about during the storm, but a, a lightning strike supercharged all the equipment and, and opened it too wide and it became a door that these things came through. It's a good call that they excised that. That gives us too much of the sci-fi stuff to begin with. Definitely. I mean, what works is that we're on the ground level. Yeah, exactly. We're, yeah, we're with the, the common people, the, the ordinary people. It makes it more effective when it's a panic explanation coming from babyface Sam Witwer. Yeah. Like, because he's just telling us what he knows. Yeah. He doesn't know all of the shit about that. Even this. his perspective, and it might be flawed. Because he's yeah. hearing it secondhand, and they probably heard it secondhand from whoever they heard it from. Can I just say, like, you say babyface Sam Witwer, and that's just because Sam Witwer is, like, I mean, he's not as famous, so he doesn't get it, but he's like Paul Rudd or Keanu Reeves. He's 30 years old in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> he's older than I am. Oh, Sam Witwer, he's one of those actors where he does pain perfectly. When he's, like, being carried by the crowd and thrown outside, he just nails that. He nails mm. sort of just screaming in pain and terror. And then when he's begging for his life, you feel it. I I love the sequence where the fog rolls up and just this one guy's just hoofing it to the to the store and he's like, I don't know what's out there. Don't go outside. Yeah, he's covered in blood too. And which doesn't help. It happens so quick. Yeah. Too. And I think that's part of what Lawson was talking about of natural disaster and how it a situation can just spiral completely out of control mm. and all of that. And that's this kind of situation. No one is prepared for this kind of event, bugs notwithstanding, because no one is prepared. No one has their guns. They're going to the shops to pick up supplies so they can fix their own homes. They, they're already in this situation where they think the storm has passed. They're already in that moment of, okay, rebuild, when they should have had their guard up that whole time. It's it's a great choice of location, too, mm. because it it makes them so vulnerable. Not only is it visually so striking, because you can see out and you can see the mist at all times, but it's like Ollie says, you know, the whole front of this store is plate glass. Mm. Mm. 
um, what happens when they figure out they can get in here. And the lack of privacy amongst the people, too. Hmm. There's only so many places you can go to be alone. And how many people are packed in there as well? That's yeah. what makes it really effective, the the work that the background actors are doing. Like you said, it is kind of disingenuous to even call them extras at this point, considering the amount of consistent work they were doing. Nobody is yeah. doing the old extra technique of watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. Yeah. Uh, they're all, like, legit having conversations in character doing the work. Obviously, other than the people in the fruit section who are just loving the selection of watermelon that is there. Uh, They're talking about watermelon. Do you need me to explain the watermelon thing? Yes. Okay, so uh, when doing work as an extra, it is common practice to have extras that are meant to be having conversations to just say words similar to watermelon. Because it's got a lot of syllables, it has a lot of Mm. mouth movement, it makes it seem more like a conversation than just making stuff up. Faking. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, 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 it's mainly for like short coverage work. Yeah. Work as an extra is actually really complicated. It's fascinating, honestly, that Darabont made sure that there was consistency with the extras. Well, it it actually reminded me of the extra pool for Lost. Because that was the thing about Lost was that you had like your main, I don't know, 20 named characters. But then you also had a, another like 40 or 50 background extras. And those were consistent throughout the whole show's run. They were the, the same background performers who came back year after year. And there's actually like... I mean, I suppose a mild spoiler alert for Lost at the, but like at the end of season four, there's this this ship that shows up on the island, and everyone's like, "Oh, great, we're going to get off." And so, you know, casting director comes around and says, "All right, we we need to choose some, uh, some extras, some actors who are going to go on the boat with our with some of our main characters." And all of these extras are like, oh, "I want to be on the boat. I want to be on the boat because they think, well, that's where the storyline's going. So if I want to still be in the show next year, uh, I got to be on the boat. If I want to eventually have a name, <laughs> yeah. But of course, the boat blows up like two minutes later, two episodes later, and they're all gone. And the ones who are still on the island are the ones that have jobs next year. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it reminded me of that that sort of creation of of a background pool of performers that it just lends it authenticity oh, and yeah. there's always there's always something going on in the background oh yeah for sure yeah you never it it adds production value it's, it's such a simple thing of i mean you're you're in such a small space and you're in such a a, a limited financial scope of what you can accomplish that just having half a dozen people wandering around in the background doing things i mean it makes it feel like a legitimate situation it makes it feel alive and and like, there's stuff going on. Like, yeah. if you pay attention to one specific cast member in the back, you might not be able to extrapolate a story, but you know it's consistency. Hmm. You you hmm. know it's the same character day after day after day. The butcher. The butcher. Yeah. The guy who ends up stabbing Sam Witwer. And he's been there the whole time, growing more and more sort of disjointed in their head. Yeah, but you can you can actually see, you can actually see that work being done by the performer for him to become like comedies heavy by the end. I think it's very much a pointed decision to make it a shopping center as well. This place where people need to go, this place where you can seemingly get anything, this place that is emblematic of 
society, really. Of well, yeah, and it's the one place, really, where all of these different types of people would cross over at the watering once. Hole. And it's it's also really good because you don't know how long they're after going to be there. And you need, you need those explanations about food, water, sustenance, that sort of shit. And I do want to talk a little bit about what's outside rather than inside. The creature design is really good. It is. The effects The effects work is mostly pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it, it shows its age and it shows it, its budget at times, but it does what it needs to do for the most yeah. part, and, and the designs are all very strong. I think that Darabont makes an extremely good choice of... We rarely get to see too much in full. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we really only get to see, the, what, the spiders, the insects, the, the bat thing. Mm. And the big giant yeah. thing. Even that, that's sort of obscured by the mist, the fog. Yeah, and we we don't get a lot of context. I mean, we know how they got in, but we don't know what they yeah. are. But when the the guy goes to try and get to his truck, and the the line suddenly goes like rigid tight, we don't know what that is. Like that's not the insects. That's not the the spiders. That's not the that's bat thing. Bigger. I mean. That's something giant. And it's that level of sort of, I mean, Darabon is right to do it, to leave us not really knowing what's out there. Because it's, it's like that whole thing with with Pennywise, the infamous thing of, of, of Pennywise at the end of the 90s miniseries, and he's just a giant spider, you know, this big cosmic Lovecraftian entity. And all we can really do on this TV budget in the 90s is a giant animatronic spider. You know, it's always more effective to leave it, up to the audience's well, imagination. It's that classic horror technique of whatever the audience imagines will be specifically terrifying to them. Yeah. It, it's like a, it's a way of personalizing horror in a way that giant spider just doesn't do. A giant spider yeah. can't be terrifying, and you know the dog-sized spiders and this are a really good example of that. But it's it's what you don't know. It's it's what you dream up in your brain when looking at that mist. That is most effective. We see the tentacles of that one creature. But we don't see what those tentacles are from. No. We only see the one tentacle too, like, right? Several. Like, mm. how many are Se- there? Several oh. come through, but oh, that's, that's right, all yeah. we get of whatever the hell that thing is. Yeah. It's obfuscating the totality of what's going on. Yeah is what's most effective here. You don't know if this is the end of times or not. Like, you get told that uh, scientists opened a door, but... You don't yeah. know how far this is stretched. You don't know why the mist goes away. You, you don't know why these creatures in particular are here. You don't know if the you, door can be closed. Yeah, you hear that the a door was opened. How big does that door have to be for that giant thing at the end of the movie to come through? Yeah. And how do you close that? Do these cre- creatures just come with the mist and when the mist disperses they disperse we don't know and that's what's so great about this movie does the mist itself have uh toxic agents mm. floating around in it what what is the nature of the mist itself uh will there we be don't know will there be will there be generations after that suffer from the effects of the mist's presence itself it's always I, i've mentioned it before the thought exercise of what the wikipedia page for the events of this movie looks yeah. like if it's non-fiction that time where in maine a portal to another dimension got accidentally opened and the whole you know area was shrouded in mist like what does the the news coverage that night look because i i think we can say news assume- coverage is a bunch of people being like 
We saw this mist and someone just like you, Lawson, being like, it's actually fog. <laughs> um, but I think that I think that we can assume, given the way this movie ends, that it's a localized event. Yeah. That, you know, the people in France aren't dealing with this. They're just watching it on TV, this weird stuff that's happening in North America. It seems as though the state of Maine has been covered by a thick fog. Get Stephen King on the phone. He might have a reason for this. I like the idea that Stephen King is just in a- he's in a house down the street, sees these bugs and is like, I want no part of this, so he goes into the basement, into his, like, creepy no, no, main no. bunker. He's out of state and just laughing his arse off that Maine is once more <laughs> going through a calamitous event. But- I think it's so interesting that... You just know, you just absolutely know that 50 years from now, Stephen King will become, like, some public domain character in a series of, like, supernatural detective novels where they'll, like, imagine this whole secret life he had doing, like, X-Files-related things. like, Mary Shelley Demon Hunter... Or some bullshit like that. The, the way that they have have done that with people like Arthur Conan yeah. Doyle and and oh, stuff there like was that. like a yeah. there was like a TV show that they made that the BBC was going to make. They didn't end up airing it fully, but it was Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry, Sir Arthur Conan Sir Doyle. Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini as kind of like buddy yeah. cops. They did air it. <laughs> They did air it, but it didn't, like, last very long. Yeah. I'm not sure whether... I can't can't remember whether it was meant to be a multiple season thing or not, but... But, like, then there's those, like... We talked about those murder mysteries of Elizabeth I um, solving solving murders. Apparently, I I heard rumblings of... Oh, there was... There was... This is off topic, but it's It's Queen Victoria, but underneath the dress, she's just got knives. No, it's Queen Victoria, but under the dress it's just minions. Hang on a hang on a second here. I want to find something that I can um It's always interesting to see the directions that people will take historical characters. Alright, so this is from twenty eighteen, just after the Trump administration started, and after Obama and Biden left the White House, but obviously before Biden became president himself. This is an actual book. I'm texting you the cover image now called Hope Never Dies, in which Barack Obama and Joe Biden team up to solve crimes. And that's a terrible quality image, but it wasn't supposed to come through like that. I got the picture, dude. It doesn't need to be crystal clear for me to understand that that is a nope situation. There there are actually two of these. There's Hope Never Dies, and then there's Hope Brides Again. I actually, okay, I want to redo this paragraph here of the the blurb for this. Vice President Joe Biden is fresh out of the Obama White House and feeling adrift when his favorite railroad conductor dies in a suspicious accident. Okay, that's, that. Okay, so that, that actually tracks. So far, that actually feels really legit to the character of Joe Biden. Because if you look at Joe Biden, you think to yourself, that guy likes trains. That guy has a favorite train and a favorite train conductor leaving behind an ailing wife and a trail of clues. To unravel the mystery, Amtrak Joe re-teams with the only man he's ever fully trusted, the 44th President of the United States. Together, they'll plumb the darkest corners of Delaware, travelling from cheap motels... From cheap <laughs> Sorry, motels darkest to- corners of Delaware? The nastiest thing that ever happened in Delaware is that a rat got into the KFC fryer. That's it. Travelling from cheap motels to biker bars and beyond as they uncover the sinister forces advancing America's opioid epidemic. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. 
a, a biker bar with Joe and Barack? Okay, that those last three words took a wild turn. Yeah. <laughs> those last three words took me on a journey. That felt like a book in itself. Let me redo this uh, this one for the sequel. This okay. was 2019. That, that, sadly, there hasn't been any since Biden got elected president, because I think they could do something fun with that. But um, this is for- They could. Hope rides again, and I want to text you if I can get this bloody image to do it properly. I want to text you that image because it's even better than the first one. Good lord, really? From a helicopter? Yes, it's for for the listeners. It is Barack Obama hanging from a rope ladder beneath a, a helicopter, holding Joe Biden, who is hanging precariously without a good grip on the rope ladder. Rope ladder Obama Biden. That's, that's Imagine he's being extracted from some sort of dangerous situation. Yeah. Yes, that is the impression that you get. Following a long but successful book tour, Joe Biden has one more stop before he can return home. Chicago. Why the... Sorry, why is it the Da Vinci Code now? I'm not sure, but I think this might have been like tying into Joe Biden's pre-election run book that they all write. His old pal Barack Obama has invited him to meet a wealthy benefactor whose endorsement could turn the tide for Joe if he decides to run for president. The two barely have time to catch up before another mystery lands in their laps. Obama's prized Blackberry is stolen. When their number one suspect winds up full of lead on the south side, the police are content to write it off as just another gangland shooting. But Joe and Obama smell a rat. Set against the backdrop of a raucous city on St. Patrick's Day, Joe and Obama race to find the shooter, only to uncover a vast conspiracy that goes deeper than the waters of Lake Michigan, which is exactly where they'll spend the rest of their retirement if they're not careful. I don't know how to feel. Okay, and I know we are so far afield, but this is just too good. The author, if you look at his bibliography, likes Obama and Biden and does not like Trump. No, I I wouldn't imagine so. He's not writing, like, buddy cop crime fiction for Trump. This is his next book. Feel the Burn, a Bernie Sanders mystery. Ooh. Ooh, a Bernie Sanders mystery. Bernie Sanders closed room mystery. That would actually slay. Bernie Sanders is on summer break from the Senate. In true Man of the People fashion, the Vermont Country Store in Eagle Creek, a quiet, picturesque resort community on Lake Champlain. After a long day chatting up voters from behind the register, he likes to unwind at his shoreline cabin with a nice cup of decaf and a cosy mystery. I don't know, Bernie Sanders does not seem like he drinks decaf coffee. (laughs) No. He's way too agitated to drink decaf coffee. When I imagine Bernie Sanders, I don't imagine the term relax. When a local farmer's body washes on shore at the Summer Jazz Festival, however, there's nothing cosy about it. All signs point to the nefarious forces of Big Maple. <laughs> the, <laughs> the multinational agribusiness that has been forcing Eagle Creek's false small farms to either sell or shut down. Bernie's aide, 20-something Carly Crash Romero, who's grudgingly joined her boss on this trip to the small town she left behind, is shocked when the sheriff declares the death an accident. Bernie isn't surprised. Corruption is everywhere, even in rural Vermont. He's not about to let it slide, though, not in his own backyard. What starts with just a few innocent questions on Bernie and Crash's part soon turns into a full-blown amateur investigation. Before long, they are swept into a web of criminal intrigue, becoming novice sleuths, just like the detectives in Bernie's beloved paperback cozies. Bernie has been fighting for justice for over half a century, 
There's only so much that one could do via legislation, however. It's time for the mittens to come off. Not only because it's summer, but because it's time for evildoers to feel the burn. <laughs> I mean, it's probably also a little bit chilly in Vermont, even in the mm. summer. Hope Never Dies audiobook in German. There is no English version. Well, yeah. that is a fucking shame. So Bernie Sanders is Poirot. Apparently. That's dope as hell. Just yeah. first, something happened to Stephen King in Maine. I don't know what it is. He lives there. That's why. <laughs> That's what happened. Th- this is his day to day. He has had to experience Maine. <laughs> it's creepy children who live in corn. It's weird spider bug creatures coming with the fog. John, it's I'm all pretty of sure Children stuff. of the Corn was Nebraska. Eh. Moving on. Mrs. Carmody. Yeah, Mrs. Carmody. <sighs> I think she's an extremely effective villain. Mm. We hate her. Uh, She's so frustrating, but so recognisable, especially now. Um, The first time I watched this in, like, 2012, I was like, oh, it's good, but, like, I'm not sure that people would... would." People aren't like this. People are basically good. Well, I didn't think that, but I also didn't think that (laughs) someone... I didn't think someone so obviously crazy would be able to sway so many people, but uh, now I do. You don't think you know now. The thing about Mrs. Carmody that I think lets the film down is how extremely black and white and obvious she is. Mm, one um, note. There's, there, yeah, like a really extraordinarily aggressive and abrasive character from the beginning. You know where this is going. You know what she's doing. There's no dimension to her at all. Uh, and she she sort of has that thing where, that Jack Nicholson's version of The Shining had where he, he's, he's crazy before he even gets to the Overlook, you know? Um, so he's got nowhere to go. You know, he's already operating at this fever pitch. He's got nowhere to go once the, the weirdness kicks off. And that's sort of the same here. She's, she's such a tyrant from the very beginning. It removes any option for for something a little more complicated and a little more graceful in the in the way everything collapses. I think there's a different way of viewing that, that she, it has been like this this whole time, it's just everything else is rising to her level. Mm. Everything else is just sort of getting to that point where people start listening to her. She seems yeah. like a character who has a lot of weakness within her, like personal weakness. She's a very selfish person. She's very proud, even though she wails against people with pride. She is very hate-filled, but also very hateable. She's She seems like she's taking this situation for all she can, because this is the first time people have actually listened to her. Well, this is the, the thing that I think is a bit of a problem for them, is that there's actually a fair amount of deleted scenes on the Blu-ray that further contextualise her character that should have been kept in. There's an exchange between her in that in that initial confrontation with the whole group after they first see the tentacle and Andre Brower doesn't really believe them and then the manager. Like, there's this whole thing there where she was going to have more of a, a moment there. And then Laurie Holden's character sort of brushes her off in a very condescending way, which then further contextualizes that later scene where she first talks to Laurie Holden in the movie in the bathroom, where she immediately goes for the throat for Eleven. It comes off as, like, out of nowhere in the film, yeah. but with that deleted scene, it's still 
her being an asshole, but it makes sense. And that scene itself is extended, both in her interactions with, with Laurie Holden. She has a sort of a, a exchange with her where she's basically like, look, I don't like being condescended to, like in the nastiest way possible, but that's what she's the point she's making. But also there is a longer period of footage of her praying before Laurie Holden comes into the room, which makes it very, very clear that Mrs. Carmody is terrified. And you you get the sense from hearing the things she's saying, she's, she's sort of asking for confirmation. You know, I was good, wasn't I? Yeah, she, you get the sense that she's worried about her own salvation yeah. hmm. and that a lot of what is driving her of, of the way the circular conversation that she's having to herself, to God, whatever, as she's praying is sort of almost her trying to strike a bargain. Well, surely you'll let me in to heaven if I can bring some of these people to salvation. And that contextualizes that, like those two little moments contextualize that character in such a different way that that instantly give her so much more depth than the cartoon character that she is. More dangerous. Exactly. It makes more... She she feels more real, and that's what makes her more scary, if you've got that. We recognise her as a version of, of people in the real world, of people that we may have had the misfortune of meeting in real life, but definitely people we've seen on the news and people we've you know heard about on TV and stuff like that. But she is such an extreme version of that that it's kind of she is used as iconography rather than as a character yeah. mm. frankly she is an idea rather than a person and i think in, in that sense the movie loses the opportunity to be even more unsettling because if you actually started from a place where where we were able to recognize her as a human being that then mounted to the point where she is doing the things that she's doing and calling for the death of a child yeah, and she is bringing those people along with her. That 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 could have been way more unsettling if they had had a, a lighter touch yeah, with her. That's fair. Even if she does get some of the greatest bitchy dialogue in like the history of cinema. If I ever wanted a friend like you, I guess I'd just take a little squat and shit one. <laughs> like it's some gold standard. I doubt your commitment to spark emotion shit. Yeah, yes. but like, but like you see, with the absence of that. Condescending confrontation between her and Laurie Holden. She just like spins one hundred percent into yeah, it. It's way too too much, too far, and it, it, there's no retrieving her from from that level of extremity. I do point. have to say, like when we were watching it this time, it's fascinating you gave us that context because I even was thinking there's something missing here. Why is she calling calling Laurie Holden a slut? What's this about? Well. This this was not in the deleted scenes either, but it was in the book. Over the course of the novella, I don't want to keep calling it Laurie Holden. What's her name? Amanda. Amanda. Yeah, the Amanda the and you are having an affair. Yeah, Amanda and David get closer and closer. Well, they're not having an affair before they get in the supermarket, but they get closer and closer over the course of the events of the novella, and uh, eventually they sleep together, and that that is really why Amanda is targeted at the end by Carmody. And that's why she keeps calling her a whore and a slut and, and all of those words is because of, of that interaction. Uh, you know, the sort of very, uh, very biblical thing of the idea of the man being not to blame yeah. for acts of infidelity, the whole Jezebel notion. But all of that's pretty much excised from the film. All of it's excised, but it, it again, it, it was a more clear arc for that character in a relationship with 
everyone else. There's just ways I think that Darabont is so focused on making his point and in, in some points, at some points I think he goes too far in hammering at home. At some points I think he he sacrifices artistry for making sure we get the idea. I just want to talk about the pharmacy sequence. Oh, the moment oh. I saw the spiderweb, I'm like, nope, nope, hate this. <laughs> when the guy sort of peels off the wall and lands and then his back just fucking explodes with all of those spiders. It's like, Jesus Christ. I, I initially said to John that when I have him coming off of the wall that he's webbed to, I would have had his like back, like the skin on his back slough off. But no, no, it exploding with the baby spiders is much worse. And it's like, that's the thing of all of these monsters is that they're drawing on some very primal sort of fears. Fear of insects, fear of bugs, fear, fear of, of tentacles. Fear of tentacles. But even like the the whole bursting out of the back thing. I mean, that's a mixture of two things. That's a mixture of alien. So it's it's the. I mean, it's pl- playing on a similar Growing thing. Growing inside of, you. Of, yeah, a, a forced birth, basically a forced violent birth. But then there's it's even playing on urban legends. It's playing like that. What's that old story the of the spider bubblegum? The, the spider egg bubblegum. Yeah, but like I'm thinking of something else. Was like with the the girl with like the the bump the bump on her face that keeps growing bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually a spider crawls out. Yeah, of it. yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It bursts, and there's a bunch of baby spiders. Yeah, yeah. So like it's drawing on a whole bunch of those things, and it's super effective. That entire scene is so tense just because of the way that the handheld filmmaking works. There, the effects are fantastic, and the entire time you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Because we've got all of our most loved characters here. We've got Ollie. We've got the main character. We've got Sam Witwer. And we've got the old lady who throws tins of peas at people. And she's a boss as well. And creates a deodorant flamethrower. She rocks. When when she did that, I was like, yes, can we follow Ollie in this chick? This rocks. Let's talk about Ollie, because I love Ollie. I love Ollie. Ollie is awesome. I... And, you know, it was something I was thinking about before that I forgot to mention, but something that is good is the way that they imply so much history between all of the characters. And it implies character backstories. Obviously, there's stuff with the Sam Witwer and the checkout girl. But, like, there's that throwaway line when Ollie's drinking after they come back from the tentacle and his manager says something like, um, you know, I've You've fallen off the wagon while Ollie, like, do you want me to report you? There's almost this suggestion that the reason such an intelligent, competent, middle-aged guy is doing a a teenager's work at a checkout thing is that something's happened in the past Mm. yeah, because of of alcoholism. We also get uh, when uh, the the teacher, the old teacher lady, says that she taught one of the engineers. Yeah. And... And that's some really good world building. You can tell this is a community. Yeah, and you get that power. Ollie's like, don't listen to Mrs. Carmody. She's known to be unstable. But there's all the stuff with, like, Andre Brower and Thomas Jane that we never get nailed down on what exactly that's about. Yeah, and in that sense, we're just being chucked into the situation. Same as when Harley and I were talking about the McPherson tape. We're given little snippets of backstory and reasons for things. But we're being chucked into a day in the life, a few days in the lives of these terrified, scared human beings. 
Yeah. I do love that line that you spoke of earlier from Ollie. Ollie, please, back me up here. I wish I could. As a species, we're fundamentally insane. Put more than two of us in a room, we pick sides and start dreaming up reasons to kill one another. Why do you think we invented politics and religion? Oh, Jesus, that's just wrong. Oh, yeah, Ollie's got this very dry wit, which I like that whole... Welcome to Sesame Street. The word today is expiation. I mean, <laughs> you take that sort of wit that he has combined with, you know, his high levels of intelligence and his extreme competence. I mean, he's the smartest person in the building. Yeah. And it doesn't hurt that he's played by Toby Jones. Yeah. And he's the most effective person in the building, too. I mean. And you wouldn't expect it. The most dangerous as well when he's got the gun. Does he miss a shot? No. No. He's like he in his backstory he he explains that he did shooting competitions when he was young. I love the But bit- there are like six bullets, right? They say that when she first brings out the gun. Six bullets? Uh no no no. He has uh there's a bullet count throughout the entire movie that stays very precise and consistent. Yeah. I was even counting down with them. He doesn't waste a shot. Yeah. And I love the bit where the bat is approaching the boy, and how he's just and Ollie's Ollie's just he's waiting. Just he's waiting like, and waiting. don't want to hit the kid. Get the kid out of the way. Get him out of the way. He's out of the way. Bang! Bang. One like, shot. The moment that kid is out of his line of sight, he just lights this thing up. Hmm. But it's not much that Ollie can do against the big boy. No, which is so sad because you see a lot of characters that you end up really liking, like that biker dude who <sighs> turns to Mrs. Comedy and says. Hey, crazy lady, I believe in God, too. I just don't think he's the bloodthirsty asshole you make him out to be. And then she says something like, well, you can just discuss that with the devil at your leisure. Um, see, yeah, see, that's a th- that's a thing. She, the reason she's so frustrating is because she's such an accurate representation of a person who you can't have any conversation with. You know, it doesn't matter what point you make. Yeah. What, what, were, what were we saying on Friday night watching this? That, that we would go behind one of the stacks and yell out, God doesn't exist, just to try and piss her off. Um, I would hide behind something, like, chuck something at her just to, at her to just agitate the situation more. <laughs> uh, the way that lady throws peas. Oh, yeah. That old lady's real cool. Well, comedy wouldn't be able to deal with me. I think this would be a Howard situation. <laughs> yeah. Where You're I first would just... to go. Oh, yeah, you would be first to go. And, and frankly, on that... Comedy could probably get a lot of people on board sooner if you were if you were in the mix shot. <laughs> but- yeah, I would just like when she was on her bullshit, I would probably yell out, "If you're so willing to go and meet God, how about you be the first in line?" Mrs. Comedy is the kind of person who's like, "New Testament God, please." That's a very recent invention, which I don't think's going to catch on. See, but like John, your kind of intervention is the kind of intervention that just makes everything worse. Exactly. Like, you're not talking anyone down, you're just accelerating the situation and pouring petrol on the fire. You're just throwing a grenade into the middle of the room. Let's yeah. let's talk about the ending, because I do feel like we need oh. to wrap up here. It's, it's brutal. Yeah. It's horrifying. Brutal. And I do think it is extremely effective. I think that it, more than any other scene, is the scene where Darabont leans too hard, though. He spams the, the horror button too much, mm. and kind of loses some of its effectiveness for me. Not not during the event itself, but afterwards then when the military arrives and there's that 
all of the music just in just in case you missed it and everyone staring at him and how he drops down and like it's it almost couldn't be more obvious unless you had a sound effect that went (laughs) i do get that but then like they make thomas jane say say the line it was all for nothing and like yeah tom we saw, we saw those cars drive past. We know, you don't have to tell us. Just, I think it's so heartbreaking when he takes the gun and just starts firing into his mouth and screaming, but it just mm. keeps clicking. Out of all of the scenes, and sure, he may have been a little wooden at the beginning, I think he knocks it out of the park with that scene in particular. Oh yeah, it's, it's his best scene in the movie, and I think he's good in the movie. I was just more earlier reacting yeah. to your contention that he should have been nominated for an Academy Award. Which I, I think it's just like such a heartbreaking moment, and you can see on his face that he's done. Do you want to know what the roughest thing is? We haven't even explained what happens. It's so rough. Oh yeah. Okay, yeah. so I'll, I'll just go through it. So... <laughs> They've got into the car, Ollie, old mate with the big moustache, they've all been next, killed by the yeah, monsters. Yeah, Ollie and the Marlboro Man. Yeah, Ollie and the Marlboro yeah. Man, they're dead. The manager is forced to stay in the store, which in the end probably saves his life. Mm. Yeah. So they get into the the Range Rover, drive away, but they've only got about four four bullets left in the gun. The countdown being very consistent throughout the film. Then they driving through the fog so they all silently agree that they should all kill themselves essentially uh so he shoots the old man the old lady yeah because they ran out of fuel yeah yeah holden but the boy wakes up just before is forced to shoot his son and that is that's the mean spirited touch to me the boy is awake for that Mm. and just we get that shot from outside bang 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 Bang. That smidge of hesitation before that final yeah. gunshot kills me. I don't know. That'd be weird. To, I would assume that the boy was the one he killed first. Yeah. Because that's weird if he wakes up and he's like, oh, you're awake. Good. You can see me kill these three people before I get to you. Like, that would be odd. I don't know, I but still, like- it's just, it's so bleak. I'm not going to stretch and say mean-spirited, but it just makes me feel like shit. What if that pause wasn't him pausing in f- before killing his son? What if he killed his son first, then the old people, and the pause was him deciding whether to shoot himself or shoot the woman? Yeah, that's a that'd be a pretty big trick, wouldn't it? Like bang, 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 peace out, bang. Like <laughs> he's just sitting there. Yeah, that would be a bit. Uh, I I think you'll he's really trying over- to think of if he can. I think you're through. really overstating how long this pause is. I know. It's I, not very long at I'm all. I'm just saying, it's just that the soldiers just show up. Yeah, frankly, that is his mistake. I don't think you need to kill everyone immediately, right? Yeah. You can just sort of sit there for a couple of days until you're, like, really weak and you're really sure that nothing's mm, going to yeah. come and save you. But there's plenty of time for them to sit and wait yeah, but and if see what after, happens. After seeing whatever that was that walked past them, in your mind you're thinking... Shit, she was right. She was right. And you're thinking, my God, it's the end. See, I'm not. There's no, like, giant dinosaur thing in the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, for sure. But that... Okay, does that look like a dinosaur to you, mate? I said giant dinosaur thing. It's more thing than it is dinosaur. That entire sequence is underscored with a song from Dead Can Dance called The Host of Seraphim. Mm. And it is beautiful in its 
Terror, which is evocative of the name The Host of Seraphim. This ending is legendary. Yeah. Yeah. This is, throughout the movie, it's been great, but this is the scene that gives the movie its legacy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that there is this theory that Carmody was right. Like, there's this fan theory, because she's trying to sacrifice Amanda and Billy, and when they die, the mist disappears in seconds. And yeah. I think that's a mistake from the movie's part. Like, we should not be able to take that reading from the movie, given what it's saying about comedy and religious extremism, that that reading exists is a problem. And that it, it's not just that reading. I mean, it's the fact that it never explains why the bug ignores her when it's on her, mm. why mm. it doesn't kill her. Like, there is a problem with allowing that reading to remain, given yeah. the themes of the film. Mm. That's That's true. You don't want to leave the vagaries like that. Why don't we now move on? There are a couple of parents' guide entries this week. The IMDb parents' guide segment for the for the uninitiated is when we when we talk about the pervy and or prudish entries in the IMDb parents' guide for the movie that we're discussing. Uh, this week in the sex and nudity section, we have non graphic flirting occurs. <laughs> okay. Okay. Also, tell me if you can even place this. An older woman has her nipples poking through her shirt. Uh, I, I wasn't looking. Uh, I Maybe. don't know. Maybe, Maybe it's it there. happened with, I... with the freaky, grease-covered, fine-toothed comb that these people seem to go over the <laughs> movies with. Maybe. I, off the top of my head, I don't remember a single nipple. I think it's more like poking in the fabric. Yeah, but still. I, I know. That's the reading yeah, I get. Still. Even with that, even I don't that, remember anything even, like even that. Even that, the way that that was phrased was really weird. Really creepy. In the violence and gore section two, a woman tells people that God is a vengeful God. Mm-hmm. A- a- anyone who's sort of, like, not remembering those parts of the Bible, maybe should <laughs> look it up. So now why don't we move on to, say, who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and of course, who would recast with this podcast patron saint character actor John Lithgow? Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> Me! I will start us off and I will say that my MVP here is probably Toby Jones. It's got to be Toby Jones. He steals everything he's in. He's got all the best lines. He delivers it with dry humour and he just portrays this decent, competent, but scared guy who's just trying his best. He does it really well. I can't give it to Darabont because I think that there are just a little too many things messy with his script and, and with the way he chooses to stage some things. But Toby Jones is throughout a delight. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, it's got to be the scene in which Carmody tries to sacrifice Amanda and Billy. It's intense, it's frustrating, it's the denouement. And of course, we get, you know, Ollie's big moment. I rewound, I rewound that and watched it several times because it's just... It's it's such a great thing because you don't see all you all you see is is comedy suddenly gets shot and the bottle of milk she's holding explodes but um you don't takes you a moment to register it's Ollie and just yeah. the moment you do is when Darabont uh, turns the camera so that you see him holding the gun uh, it's it's really well done it's it's I mean that ten seconds is the greatest moment of the film for me. <laughs> 
Because you're so frustrated by this person. Oh, I'm just so happy that it's Ollie that gets to do it. Mm, I remember I watched this for the first time with my mother and she sort of like slapped the arm of a chair and said, finally, someone had to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out your mother is as bloodthirsty as I am. (laughs) In terms of who I would recast with this podcast patron saint character actor John Lithgow, the answer is obvious. (laughs) Ollie. Um, He could do that whole thing. He's got that... He's got a similar vibe of Toby where he, he can be that very sort of, you know, normal, hardworking, small town guy. He could, you know, capture that that same sort of slight incongruity of being this very competent, very intelligent man working as a checkout store in a small town's grocery outlet. It's it's would be a good role for him. We get to see him fire a gun. He'd be the most likable character in the thing. And he takes out the main villain. Yeah. It's, it, I'm seeing no downside here. It's everything you want. It's everything we want. To the point where, watching this movie, I was like, can't be anyone else. Yeah. So, I'm going with, with Ollie. For me, my MVP is Toby Jones. Ollie is just a remarkable character. Not just because of the writing, because he is written really, really well, but Toby Jones just brings that dry wit and, frankly, the competence to the character, because... Toby Jones is always a really, really good actor. I've always enjoyed him in pretty much everything I've seen him in. Yeah. I forgot to mention, too, it's it's the fact that he's so physically unassuming, yeah, which is great yeah. when he turns out to be a badass as like well. just little guy. Yeah, he's very short. He's ve- He looks, I mean, he looks fairly nerdy. He doesn't seem dangerous. Yeah, there's a reason he was cast as Truman Capote. <laughs> Toby Jones, MVP. My favourite scene or sequence has to be when they're driving through the fog and they see the giant creature. Just walking through. it It's one of those scenes that really shows you these people are just small. This creature doesn't acknowledge them, doesn't see them, doesn't care. It's a force of nature. The mist is a force of nature. You can fight between yourselves all you like. The mist doesn't give a shit. Mm. Um, and obviously, just the pure beauty, awe, and scale of a creature so undefinable is just remarkable work. It's gotta be Ollie, you know? This is why we have this sequel, this segment. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. John Lithgow is born to play this character. Uh, it, what else do you say? So for me, my MVP is either Frank Darabont or Marsha Gay Harden, but I think I have to give it to Darabont because there's a lot here that I really love, and a lot of it comes from him. You are a Darabont stan. I'm a Darabont stan. I think... I think Shawshank Redemption is a perfect film, and I love every movie that I've seen him direct. And he also was one of the writers on my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Warriors. And I think there's so much good here. He gets Stephen King. He understands fundamentally what the deal is here. And he puts in little references to other works. The painting that Thomas Jane is painting at the beginning is of Roland Deshaun the gunslinger in the Dark Tower. And there's other references to King's things. The Mist itself may be a reference to the Dark Tower itself. And there's a lot of good here. He picked such a good group of people to make this project come together. And I think I have to give it to him for that. But second runner-up, Marsha Gay Harden, she goes for it. And I appreciate that a lot. For my favorite scene or sequence, I have to give it to... And I didn't think it was going to be this this time, but the scene in the pharmacy, it got me. I was talking to Harley about how, like, big dog-sized spiders in fiction really get me. 
but they didn't scare me scare me nearly as much as when all of those baby spiders poured out of that guy's open back <laughs> cavity that i curled into a ball like there's a specific like tiny spiders i can deal with spiders the size of aragog i can deal with anything in between that freaks me out i described it as so, if they can fit through an open doorway yeah like that got me ollie of course it's gonna be ollie that you know let's go plays it can't it literally cannot be anyone else because this is a role kind of built for him the only thing that is really the difference is that toby jones is rather a short guy john lithgow's six foot something so mm. that kind of changes the vibe of the character in that sense but otherwise it would be a perfect performance a perfect role yeah. for him he he's good though at making he can make characters that feel small small yeah. feel small yeah. i don't know if you see rise of the planet of the apes but he's playing a character yeah. with alzheimer's in that and he's making he's very good at making that character seem vulnerable despite his yeah. size yeah and i think because of his talent and because of it just being the kind of character that he does it's the same with him and toby jones it's the same with him as Timothy Spall, they play these kinds of well-rounded characters. And so I give that to, that role to him. So now we're going to put it to a vote. Whether or not we are a pro The Mist podcast or not. Lawson, why don't you start us off? I'm saying yes, and not least because I think that this movie has gained unfortunate relevance in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Definitely has. there's a certain level of anxiety to watching it that maybe. Is, is more acute now than there might have been previously. But that, combined with the excellent tension, combined with the just the strong core allegory that is always in Stephen King's stuff, that overrides any of the misgivings I might have about, you know, some of the execution. The ending is, is rightfully legendary, even if I do think it hammers things a little too hard. And it is, you know, a, to- a top-tier Toby Jones character, uh... And anytime you get to see Toby Jones fire a gun, I mean, it's 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 shoot hard, that directly into my veins. Hard to dismiss that in a, <laughs> a movie after that. So, so yes, I am going pro for this. I would have to totally agree with you, Lawson. While it does have its faults, why it is a little too oblique by the end in what its intent is, you you shouldn't leave room for false readings, you know, like that. But I do like everything else the film is doing. I love the background attention to the supporting actors, the entire cast of them. The attention to detail on the forefront performers, Toby Jones being a badass, will always get my vote. It's effective, it's tense, it's brilliant. So yes. Yeah, I'm pro this movie as well. It's all of the little details that build what is, I think, a film that stand the test of time because there will always be a cultural touchstone that we'll go back to and this will be a prism to look at these events through there's so many great moments of terror and heartbreak the end of the movie the sequence where that we didn't even talk about where the lady is asking if anyone will walk her home so she can go find her kids there's so many sad upsetting and geniusly terrifying moments it's a pro from me so there you have it ladies and gentlemen we are a pro the missed podcast
Lorenzo Lawson. Another movie about a crisis. Yep, but this one is a bit wilder and more fun. Do you promise? The ones, yes, it's more in the Mad Max Escape from New York style. Uh, in fact, those are extreme influences on it, as you will see when you watch it next week. Uh, we are talking about Doomsday. It's not really post-apocalyptic, but it is kind of, I suppose. But it's 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 a an action thriller in a dystopian world. But I, I mean, it's complicated. We'll get into that uh, next week. It's available for purchase or rental on the Apple, Amazon, and YouTube stores. Uh, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exodus the Candy Counter. Come and join myself at On the Bright Side. You can reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode specific feedback or movie recommendations. What do you think about The Mist? Have you read the novella? Have you seen this movie? Have you seen the new, se- the more recent series that came out? Uh, just give me all and your thoughts. Cancelled on a cliffhanger. Which is always the way to go. If you can tell us all that on the Twitter, you can also like, comment, and subscribe on your podcast of choice. Just remember that when you're commenting, depending on what service you use, it could be for the episode or for the show in the whole. Just pay attention to what your service does. In the machine run future, minions abound. They look exactly as they do in the films. They just walk around and it's the worst part, honestly. We've had a few incredibly detailed ones recently, so... Do they have the voice? Oh, yes. Banana! And you cannot tell me that it's not oddly convenient that between years 1812 and 1963 that they were in a fucking ice cave? Get real. I'm assuming that's a Minions reference. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Have you seen the Minions movie? No. I've I've only seen the first Despicable Me movie, but the whole franchise is on the list. Lawson. (laughs) <laughs> they disappear from the world stage for a very specific amount of time between 1812 and 1963. What did they do, like, war criminals when the British attacked America in 1812? They end like, up what? in a cave serving a Yeti, which is convenient, because okay. uh, I doubt that that Yeti was the worst person on the planet in eight. I'm just saying, it was, like, weird weird to me that they went in in the year that the British attacked in 1812 and burned down the White House, and they came out just when Kennedy was assassinated. <laughs> yeah. Was was Lee Harvey Oswald a minion? No, he was not. Were those two fuckers on the grassy knoll? Absolutely. <laughs> it was two minions in a trench coat standing on top of one another. <laughs> uh, well, next week we will be doing another movie about horrifying circumstances. However, this one's a little more fun. Uh, Mm -hmm. And Lawson has told us absolutely nothing other than what you have just heard. Uh, There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Doomsday next week. Well, that's somewhat threatening. (laughs) Doomsday next week. (laughs) Hopefully not. But we will be talking about the movie Doomsday next week. So, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. We'll be watching and discussing Doomsday. I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue to be Jean Lewis. And so, having spoken, the doomsayers depart. <laughs> <laughs>